Welcome to Hell Sucks, the podcast. Hello and welcome back to Hell Sucks. I am in the place now where I want to start talking about what hell is, biblically speaking and liturgically speaking, what the church has called it. In the reality of it. But first, let's start off with the bedrock, the foundation, the basis for any doctrine you have ever heard about hell, which I promise you does not come from actual biblical study. In almost no case does anyone do any linguistic research or investigate past just looking at what the common ideology has been. In fact, Most of what you've been taught probably came, and I'll explain this later, from the Greeks and from then the Catholics who came in and needed hell in order to control the masses um, figuratively and literally. Uh, (laughs) And so they had men like Milton and Dante who wrote these tomes that described hell in fullest detail, but it was all their imagination. Because none of that exists in any of the sacred texts. So that's that's what's weird. So I just want to read to you. These are mostly from uh, some revivalist type preachers. Here's one um, from the Reverend J. Furness. And these are from their sermons. These are things that were said from the pulpit about hell. See, on the middle of that red-hot floor stands a girl... She looks about 16 years old. Her feet are bare. Listen, she speaks to us. I have been standing on this red-hot floor for years. Look at my burnt and bleeding feet. Let me go off this burning floor for one moment. The fifth dungeon is the red-hot oven. The little child is in the red-hot oven. Hear how it screams to come out. See how it turns and twists itself about in the fire. It beats its head against the roof of the oven. It stamps its little feet on the floor. God was very good to this little child. Very likely, God saw, it would get worse and worse and would never repent. And so it would have to be punished more severely in hell. So God, in his mercy, called it out of the world in early childhood. This is the Reverend Furnace. He's teaching us about the grace and mercy of God that killed this child young in life and then put it into a burning furnace. Well, let me tell you something. If I thought that was God, I would feel the same as the atheists. I would feel the same as people who have, you know, taken up the cause of other uh, belief systems and not the cross of Christ. But I don't think that's accurate because this isn't from the Bible. There's not one verse that he's quoted. You can't find any of this in scripture. It doesn't exist. Okay? Charles Spurgeon, who I regret to say was one of my father's favorite preachers, and I will never really know why now because he's, he's gone. My dad's gone. Um, I'd love to talk to him about it. But Charles H. Spurgeon was a, a renowned Baptist minister. And here's some quotes from him on the existence and nature of hell. When thou diest, thy soul will be tormented alone. That will be a hell for it. But at the day of judgment, 
thy body will join thy soul, and then thou wilt have twin hells. Body and soul shall be together, each brimful of pain, thy soul sweating in its inmost poor drops of blood, and thy body from head to foot suffused with agony. Conscience, judgment, memory, all tortured. Thine heart beating high with fever, thy pulse rattling at an enormous rate in agony, thy limbs crackling like the martyrs in the fire, and yet unburnt. Thyself put in a vessel of hot oil, pained yet coming out undestroyed, all thy veins becoming a road for the hot feet of pain to travel on, every nerve a string on which the devil shall ever play his diabolical tune. Fiction, sir, again I say there are no fictions here, but solid, stern truth. If God be true and this Bible be true, what I have said is the truth, and you will find it one day to be so. Ironically quoted from sermon number 66 from the New Park Street pulpit. Here's another one from him. Only conceive that poor wretch in the flames who is saying, Oh, for one drop of water to cool my parched tongue. See how his tongue hangs from between his blistered lips, how it excoriates and burns the roof of his mouth as if it were a firebrand. Behold him crying for a drop of water. I will not picture the scene. Suffice it for me to close up by saying that the hell of hells will be to thee, poor sinner, the thought that it is to be forever. Thou wilt look up there on the throne of God, and on it shall be written forever. When the damned jingle the burning irons of their torments, they shall say, forever. When they howl, echo cries, forever. Forever is written on their racks, forever on their chains, forever beneath burning in the fire. Forever, ever reigns. <laughs> he certainly had a flair for the dramatic, and I can remember reading some of his sermons and wanting to write a play about this man, and maybe I will. Maybe I will. A one-man show of Charles Spurgeon, and maybe this is part of it. Maybe I can show how he gets out of this life and he finds something different than he expected, I hope. So this is Jonathan Edwards, the famous Calvinist preacher of an earlier century. And here's what he said. So it will be with the soul in hell. It will have no strength or power to deliver itself, and its torment and horror will be so great, so mighty, so vastly disproportioned to its strength, that having no strength in the least to support itself, although it be infinitely contrary to the nature and inclination of the soul utterly to sink, yet it will sink. It will utterly and totally sink, without the least degree of remaining comfort or strength or courage or hope. And though it will never be annihilated, its being and perception will never be abolished, yet such will be the infinite depth of gloominess that it will sink into, that it will be in a state of death, eternal death. To help your conception, imagine yourself to be cast into a fiery oven all of a glowing heat, or into the midst of a glowing brick kiln, or of a great furnace where your pain would be as much greater than that occasioned by occasionally touching a coal of fire as the heat is greater than that coal. Now imagine also that your body were to lie there for a quarter of, a, of an hour, full of fire, as full within and without as a bright coal of fire, all the while full of quick sense. What horror would you feel at the entrance of such a furnace? How long would that quarter of an hour seem to you? 
And how much greater would be the effect if you knew you must endure it for a whole year? And how vastly greater still if you knew you must endure it for a thousand years? And then, how would your heart sink if you thought, if you knew that you must bear it forever and ever? That after millions of millions of ages, your torment would be no nearer to an end than it ever was. And that you never, never should be delivered. But your torment in hell will be immeasurably greater than this illustration represents. How then will the heart of a poor creature sink under it? How utterly inexpressible and unconceivable must be the sinking of the soul in such a case. Wow. So, that's interesting, right? Here's another one. <clears throat> the world will probably be converted into a great lake or liquid globe of fire in which the wicked shall be overwhelmed, which will always be in tempests, in which they shall be tossed to and fro, having to no rest day and night, vast waves and billows of fire continually rolling over their heads, of which they shall forever be full of a quick sense within and without. Their heads, their eyes, their tongues, their hands, their feet, their loins, and their vitals shall forever be full of a flowing, melting fire, fierce enough to melt the very rocks and elements. And also, they shall eternally be full of the most quick and lively sense to feel the torments, not for one minute, not for one day, not for one age, not for two ages, not for a hundred ages, not for 10,000 millions of ages. One after another, after another, after another, but forever and ever without any end at all and never to be delivered. So where do you think all of this came from? Well, we're going to explore it a little bit. And I could tell you right now that when I hear people saying how evil Christianity is, my mind flees back to things like this. It's no wonder that people in past centuries were willing to put someone on a rack and torture them for their faith. It's no wonder they were willing to kill them to save them. It's no wonder... They were willing to just do all kinds of evil to them. Because they thought they were condemned to an eternal lake of fire if they didn't get them to confess to Jesus in this life. I mean, as sick and twisted as that is, if this is what you believed, isn't that what you'd have to do? And that's the kind of motivation that I've been talking about, the kind of motivation that I feel poisons everything that it touches. All right. So what does the Bible say about hell? To find this out, you kind of have to go and, and look around. <clears throat> um, and you really have to ask a lot of questions, because if you pick up the Bible itself in its current state, and you take your understanding of the word hell, and you bring it to that book, then you're going to find plenty of support 
for your ideas about hell or the ideas you've been taught or the ideas you've heard from other people. However, that idea got was transmitted to you. You're going to find plenty of confirmation for it because they've conveniently uh, translated some words to be hell to fit this idea. Um, and it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. In fact, the ancient Hebrews, prior to um, the end of Malachi, and specifically during the biblical era, we know this because we have enough recorded teaching and, and things going on, um, they didn't believe in hell. They didn't know anything about hell. It's kind of interesting that that uh, it was, you know, so beleaguered later. Um, but there's really just not that much in there about anything about the afterlife, especially not eternal judgment. So here are some interesting things about hell. What if I told you that the Apostle Paul, who wrote, what, over two-thirds of the New Testament, never mentioned a place called hell in any of his letters? Would you be even more surprised to learn that only one verse in the entire Bible, which is 2 Peter 2.4, and you can look it up if you want, contains a word that actually means hell? So this word is Tartarus. It's a Greek word, and it was the Greek hell, place of punishment. It's a pit where fallen angels await judgment. And it was like a temporary holding cell for them. So it wasn't eternal, and it wasn't for human beings. So it honestly does not apply to what we're talking about. Um, so then what did the Bible say about hell? Here's what I want to do right now. I want to just say to you, I want you to open your mind. Because I'm going to take you down this road. And we're going to start um, in the Old Testament. We're going to try to understand exactly what all this means. Okay? So, in the Old Testament, there are two words that are translated as hell. One of them is Sheol. One of them is Hades. Okay? Um, actually, Hades, no, does not come in until the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there's one word, Sheol. Uh, this is according to the King James Version, um, which is generally the one that has the most scholarly references written about it. It's not particularly my favorite version to read from or quote or anything like that, but it's an easy one to access. So, in the King James Version, we see that the word hell or Sheol is in the, New, is in the Old Testament. It is in the Old Testament uh, 65 times. Roughly half of those times, 31 times, 
it is translated as hell. 31 times the word Sheol, an equal number of times, the word Sheol is translated as the grave. And three times it is translated as the pit. The word Sheol, it actually refers to something that's covered or unseen. And that's why it was used to describe the world of the dead or the grave or dying or death or anything past this life. Um, but we know that it's not exclusively a place of punishment the way that hell is described. And that's the word that's translated, remember, 31 times in the Old Testament as Sheol. But the exact same word is used to describe Jacob, who became Israel, as being there. Uh, in Genesis 37, Genesis 42, Genesis 44. Um, Job, the righteous man, also longed to go there, to be there. In Job 14, 13, David spoke of going down to Sheol in Psalms 49. Jesus was there in Psalm 16, prophetically, and then again in Acts 2, 24 through 31. And in all of these cases, the reason the word Sheol is used of these men is because they were unseen. They were dead. They had passed from this life into something else, and, and the people on earth were no longer able to perceive them or know where they were. Okay, They couldn't describe what they were doing, communicate with them, any of that. Nothing more is said about their state at this point. There's no mention of eternal torment for them. There's no mention of eternal reward. Nothing. Uh, that's pretty interesting, I think. If you have, you know... Jacob, Job, and Jesus uh, all being described as being in Sheol, and David longing to go there, that's pretty interesting, right? I mean, if that was hell, don't you think that would be kind of a, a thing that, that we would know about? Jacob went to hell, the, the father of Israel? <laughs> that would be really interesting. You would think the Bible would mention that, but it doesn't. Many of the times that the Bible uses the word Sheol, it's talking about national judgments um, or the destruction or vanishing of a nation or a group of people. In Isaiah 14, Isaiah said that Babylon would go to Sheol and then it was wiped off the map. In Ezekiel, Tyre was wiped off the map in the same way, vanished into Sheol. In the New Testament... In Matthew 11, 12, Luke 10, and 11, Jesus said that the city of Capernaum would disappear. Now, he said into Gehenna, because he wasn't speaking, you know, in, in Hebrew. Uh, these nations and cities didn't get shifted into another dimension. They weren't dropped into a lake of fire. They were prophesied to disappear, and then they just disappeared. They were wiped out by armies, by famine, by flood, by fires, by... You know, whatever means God chose, they were destroyed. So we can see that this is clear. There's a clear, distinct pattern here of Sheol being used about national judgments in both the Old and New Testaments. It bridges the gap. It's intertestamental, okay? That word, the grave, is used. That It's, it's a hidden thing. It's a wiping out. It's a destruction of, okay? <clears throat> 
The New Testament equivalent of Sheol is Hades, and it is found 11 times. So, like its synonym Sheol, the King James Version translates the word hell. But the correct translation should be Hades or the Unseen. Um, even in this case, even in these 11 times, Hades is not exclusively reserved to describe a place of torment. Luke 16 pictures righteous Lazarus as being there in Jesus' story of the rich man and Lazarus. He's in Hades too. Maybe you didn't realize that. They're both in the same place. That's what it says. In Acts 2, Jesus went to Hades. That's what they say. And uh, you, you've probably heard that he went to hell and he took the keys of death in the grave and came back triumphant, right? There's even some references to the possibility that maybe he preached while he was there and he led people out. You know, it can, and then you can build whole theologies around some of those obscure verses if you don't know what I'm talking about. You can go look it up for yourself, but... Um, So, it's never used exclusively as a place of punishment. So, uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul uses it again. And he says, O grave, where is thy victory? We don't say hell in that verse. No, we understand it to be death. The overcoming of death is what's talked about there. Okay, in Revelations 1, Jesus said he had the controlling keys of death and Hades. The unseen, the unknown world, the part past here, the spiritual realm, everything past the physical. Revelation 6, death and Hades followed the pale horse. So imagine a pale horse riding and there's a big lake of fire coming by. Does that make any sense? No. Because what he was referring to was Hades as in the embodiment of death which was represented in the Greek god Hades, which John would have been familiar with, okay? So he says the death in Hades followed the pale horse. And then in Revelations 20, death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And then, not the dead, but death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. So here's what we get from all of that. Hades refers to anything that is unseen. Just like Sheol. Okay? So now it, we're coming to an even more interesting part here. The second usage of Sheol in the Old Testament was as a description, a prophecy of national judgment. The same thing is true in the New Testament. Okay, so... <clears throat> We've been talking about Hades in the New Testament um, and how it's used to describe judgment against a group of people. And Jesus specifically uses it in reference to the city of Capernaum. Uh, he says it would go down into Hades. It was going to vanish. And Jesus also said that his generation of Jews was going to fall into Hades. So Edward Fudge, um, he was a historian that covered some of the preachers that I was referencing earlier. He said, in Greek mythology, Hades was the god of the underworld. Then 
it was used as the name of the netherworld itself. Sharon ferried the souls of the dead across the river Styx or Acheron into this abode, where the watchdog Cerberus guarded the gate so none might escape. The pagan myth contained all the elements from medieval eschatology. Um, side note here, that's what we were talking about with the Catholics coming in and creating this mythology around what hell was and expanding the biblical view so that they could describe specific tortures that people would experience if they went there. It's all the brick kiln stuff that I was reading earlier. Um, so, there was the pleasant Elysium, the gloomy and miserable Tartarus. Remember we mentioned that uh, in the New Testament, mentioned once as a pit where angels who had rebelled were kept until judgment, and even the plains of Asphodel where ghosts could wander who were suited for neither of the above. And this is where the idea of the Catholic purgatory comes from. The word Hades came into biblical usage when the Septuagint translators chose it to represent the Hebrew Sheol, an Old Testament concept vastly different from the pagan Greek notions just outlined. Sheol, too, received all the dead. But the Old Testament has no specific division there involving either punishment or reward. And this is in his book, The Fire That Consumes. Um, so... What we have a picture of here is how the mythology of the Greeks was in, coming in and being added into, rolled into Christian doctrine um, at a later date. So these are where the ideas came from. So what we want to make sure is that our ideas about hell or Hades come from the Bible and not Greek mythology. So... I don't have a problem using Sheol the way the Old Testament used it to mean the grave or the hidden realm or the spirit world or Hades as the New Testament used it, which means the same thing. Both of these words refer to the dead who are unseen and they also refer many, many, many times to national judgments. So that's fine um, because those two things are clearly outlined in Scripture. So then we come to Tartarus. It's the one that's probably the trickiest to deal with here. Um, and it is translated hell in the King James Version in 1 Peter 2, 4. And, um, so here's what it says. For if God spared not angels when they sinned, but cast them down to hell and committed them to pits of darkness who were being punished. So, when Second Peter was written to show that God knew how to deal with disobedience among angels, this verse shows us that they were held and then they were judged. They had a trial. They, they were you know, given a chance to answer for themselves. It doesn't say anything about fire. It doesn't say anything about torment pain, punishment, or anything else. It just says they were held there. And it doesn't say anything about anyone else being there. No humans. Um, there's no punishment for anyone else there. Or how long it would last. And it never says it would last forever. It's simply just this verse is 
an anomaly. Peter's using it to describe something that happened to a specific group of angels. Um, and it doesn't have anything to do with human judgment or condemnation. So, in my next episode, I'm going to talk about what Jesus said about hell. And the word that he used was Gehenna, if you want to start looking into that. But before I get on to that, um, the popular concept of hell was completely unknown in the Old Testament. Um, it, it just didn't occur in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures that was being used at the time that Jesus was on earth, and it's what the New Testament was originally translated from because it was the most accurate text available at the time. Um, and the Jews kind of kept up with the times, so they very carefully and meticulously, through the tradition of scribes, uh, copied that from the original Hebrew manuscripts into the Greek so that they could make sure that they were very careful to maintain the accuracy of that document. And that's what was used you know, to translate the Old Testament. Um, So, before the Mosaic Law, what was the idea of hell? Adam and Eve were the original two people mentioned in the creation story in Genesis. And I'm not going to go into whether I think this is figurative or literal, if there was an actual couple that peopled the whole earth or not. I don't think it's really all that relevant to a desire to understand the divine or have a relationship with God. But when he placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in this story, he never mentioned the concept of eternal torment to them. Now, one of the reasons he might not have done this is the idea that Adam and Eve were to be eternal in their physical bodies. The death hadn't come into the world yet. So it's possible that this was not like an oversight and he wasn't hiding things from them, right? Um, at the time of creation, because if they were going to continually live in the garden, then what did it matter? But it's kind of strange that as human history begins on the planet... God sets out one rule. There's a tree. Don't eat from it. And he gave the parents of all mankind no explanation, no warning about eternal punishment. Not a word. If there was potential for this to become a problem in the future, and the future of all of their offspring, don't you think he would have mentioned this? He did give them a warning. What did he say? He said that if you eat from this tree, in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Death will come into the world. Your body will be corrupted. 
But he doesn't say anything about, oh yeah, and then after you die, um, I'm going to burn you in a lake of fire for all eternity. It's not even mentioned. Um, many Christians have believed for a long time that eternal torment is what waits the vast majority of mankind. Nearly all of Adam's and Eve's descendants would end up there. But here's the creator. He, he didn't even take the time to say, this is a possibility. Oh yeah, let me put a sign here. Um, nothing. So, let me ask you a question. What would you think of a father who said to his son, you can't ride in the street on your bike. You're not allowed. And if he did, he would he would get a spanking. He says, I'm going to spank your butt. I'm going to punish you. I'm going to take your iPod away, iPad away. Sorry, I'm showing my age there. I'm going to take away your, what is it, Switch. That's what my kids got for Christmas this year. I'll take your Switch away if you ride your bike in the street. But then suppose he was also planning to put him on the barbecue and roast him for 50 years. But he didn't tell him. Then after he took the switch away, the punishment that he had stated would happen if you ride your bike in the street when I'm not there to observe you. He takes the kid out back and he straps him to the barbecue and he lights the fire. Can you think of any apology or defense for that father? You wouldn't think he was fair or just or doing it out of some kind of love, would you? No. So, how would it be any different if, you know, the creator of everything came to Adam and Eve and he failed to mention that there was this greater punishment than the death that they would die the day that they ate of the forbidden tree. He didn't mention anything about them opening Pandora's box, uh, original sin, um, the doctrine of total depravity, or that the default of the entire creation would now shift into this thing where they would be punished forever and ever and ever. <laughs> no. Instead, God announces to them a tangible present punishment that would begin the very day that they committed the sin. In the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. They found that the wages of sin was death. Right? But that's all it was. So we go on down through the Old Testament, we get to Cain and Abel. The same is true with Cain and Abel. Here you have the first murder ever recorded in history. Two brothers out in the field. One of them picks up a stone and bashes the other one's brain in. There's this really dramatic scene there where it talks about how the blood of your brother is crying out from the earth for vengeance. So, if God was going to roll out the threat of eternal torment and... Cain was surely a target of that, right? But there was no warning. In the whole account, there's not a hint. Not anything on this subject. 
All Cain is told is that now you are cursed from the earth. When you till the ground, it won't yield to you. Um, and you'll be a fugitive and a, and a vagabond. You'll be a, a homeless person on the earth. So here it is. Cain receives an immediate, tangible, physical punishment that has a beginning and an end. When you die, it's over. And no warning of future eternal torment. Like Adam, Cain didn't get any of the dire warnings that I read to you at the beginning of this episode about what hell would be like. Um, none of that came. So, if Cain were to be punished from God without this warning, can God be a law, a just lawgiver and judge? Because that's what we believe. God is perfectly just, yes? So how is he perfectly just to impose this additional, infinitely greater punishment when nothing has been said of it? I know I sometimes felt like my parents didn't fully describe the punishment I was going to get, but we're talking about God here, right? In Genesis 4.15, God said, Whoever slays Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. Now, this is an interesting statement. How is that possible? Are there seven fiery hells? Maybe this is why Dante came up with the seven layers of hell in his book. The seventh circle of hell, you know. Maybe. I don't know. But is it possible um, that if Cain was going to be cast into a pit of fire, then anyone who killed him would be cast into seven pits of fire? I mean, what is that? Are they going to divide the body up? How does that work? I'm not trying to make a joke out of this idea. I'm just showing you that it's interesting that God doesn't mention it. So then we get to Noah, right? And this is the the greatest story of God's wrath being poured out on humanity that is recorded in the entire biblical record. And God says that every thought of man's heart was upon evil. The whole earth was filled with violence and all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. So... Let's just say God overlooked it up until now. He was like, I don't want to mention it in the garden. It's kind of a nice place. Uh, we'll figure this out later. You know, the details aren't that important. Eh, Cain and Abel. Okay, so it's the first murder. I'm just going to, you know, let this one slide, right? But when we get to this, okay, it seems like if you're going to destroy all of mankind, and you're going to wipe them off the face of the earth with a flood. But then you're also going to throw them all into a lake of fire. Because look, every thought of their heart is continually upon evil. And the whole earth is filled with their violence. And all flesh is corrupt. So surely, if anyone's going into a lake of fire, it's got to be this crowd, right? But Noah, a preacher of righteousness, says nothing about it. There's no fire in brimstone, no hell fire in his message at all. No. His warnings were just that they were going to die. It seems like if warning people about 
hell was a great way to turn them away from evil, that he would mention it right here. And when the whole entire episode is over, he spends his 40 days and nights, you know, in the rain and the in the ark and another year floating around until the mountains are clear and he comes out. Even when God comes back and talks to him and and discusses the reestablishment of life on earth, there's no mention of hell. He says nothing. Then, you know, you get to one of the stories in the Bible that um, this is post-Noah and the flood. Okay, so you would think, okay, so man has got this straightened out now, right? After all, God wiped them out with a flood, so surely they're good guys now. But then you have this little pocket of fun called Sodom and Gomorrah, these twin cities, right? So, here's... Um, they're going to be physically destructed. And he has angels go and, and preach to them. He gives Abraham a warning. Abraham does this um, debate with God up on the mountain over Sodom and Gomorrah and says, if there's just 10 good men, can you spare the city? Not once does God say, well, I'm going to rain down fire and brimstone. And then after I kill them, and wipe them off the face of the earth. I'm also going to throw their souls into hell. He doesn't say that. It's not mentioned. So if your government passed a new law. And there was a huge fine as the punishment. But when someone was found guilty. He paid the fine. But he also had to serve a sentence that was endless torture. With no warning. So, what kind of judge explains this law and the fine, but leaves out the part about eternal, you know, lifelong torment and and torture? What would the penalty of a few thousand dollars or even every penny that you ever earned in this life matter if you were going to be put into a cage and tortured every day for as long as you lived? But most Christians believe that the Sodomites were sent into such a judgment. In fact, they use them as an example of it. I mean, it's a, if you start going through the Old Testament, you've got the Tower of Babel, the destruction of Pharaoh and his armies, you've got Lot's wife. All of these received this temporal, in this life, physical punishment that had a beginning and an end, and there's no mention of any infinitely greater torture for them, no lake of fire, no burning, no wailing, no gnashing of teeth. So we have two questions here. The first would be the suggestion that God did say it, okay, that he told them they were going to hell and they refused to listen and they they went ahead with what they were doing anyway, and it was expunged from the record. Someone came in and they stripped it out. They just took out any mention of eternal damnation from the Old Testament. Sucked it right out of there. Gone. Um, the other option is that it was never there and it didn't belong because the punishment they received was the just punishment for their actions. So we know it's not there. So... Neither the word Gehenna, which is translated hell in the New Testament, and we're going to get to that in the next episode, or the concept of endless tor- 
torture was ever given in the millennia before the law of Moses. There's thousands of years here. From the creation to Mount Sinai, there's just, there's nothing about it. So, here is my conclusion. God never had a plan of inflicting eternal damnation on anybody. I mean, it's just interesting, right? So, Christians have this thing about the Mosaic Law, which is kind of a funny thing to me, because we talk about it, Jesus was the only one who ever fulfilled it. I don't know if you've ever read Leviticus, but if you go in there and you read what's there, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, yeah, it's kind of complex, and you have to be really careful about certain things. But the truth of it is, it it's not that much. I mean, it's contained in, you know, a few thousand words, really. It's not even a novel in length, and humankind can't even follow that. It's kind of pathetic, really, but there's all of these blessings and judgments that are pronounced there, and this is when God comes down, sits on a mountain with Moses, and he gets a chance to set his own rules for a group of people, right? Up until now, it's kind of been this hodgepodge deal where he shows up, he talks to Abraham, he talks to Jacob, he talks to Isaac, he puts himself in a burning bush and speaks to Moses. Um, he sends signs to Pharaoh. You know, it's this thing where he kind of dances around and he does different things, but humanity is becoming more organized. I don't know what the thinking of God is, but we come to this place where he's finally like, okay, look, I'm going to drag Jacob's kids out of Israel. And in order to do this, um, I'm going to organize them and I'm going to give them some rules. So he does it, right? And among the blessings and cursings that Moses pronounced on the Israelites in Deuteronomy 28 through 30, it's three chapters of stuff before they entered into Canaan, the promised land. If the Jews were disobedient to God, he promised them every conceivable punishment. He would curse their children. He would curse their crops. He would curse their flocks, their health, their wealth, the health of their children, the welfare of their nation. It just goes on and on. He prophesied that they would even go into captivity and they would be tortured in this life. Okay? It would get so bad that it would drive them to insanity so that they would want to eat their own children. You would think that if you are going to write such an extensive list of punishments, and they're pretty horrible, and if you read them, you kind of go, jeez, what was his deal that day, right? You would think, though, that at this point, God would say something about hell. But he didn't utter a single whisper of endless torture to come beyond this life, no matter how bad the rebellion was. All of these physical, temporal judgments would take place in this life and would end when the body was separated from the spirit. So, um, okay, so everything is spelled out. There's nothing left to the imagination. 
Um, they're spelled out in minute detail, and it's never mentioned. The writer of Hebrews said that the word spoken through angels, the Mosaic law, proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. So, as we've seen, okay, there was no mention of any eternal punishment. It was all physical and temporal, with no promise of endless torment. It just wasn't known under the law. So, how is it that the writer of Hebrews can say that they all received all the punishment they were supposed to receive. Did everyone who transgressed the law receive just punishment or not? If they did, will their punishment continue to be just if in the future, at this day of reckoning, they also receive endless torment in hell that they were never warned of, never told about, never knew anything at all about. If so, will eternal torture on top of their just physical temporal punishment that's mentioned by the writer of Hebrews still be just? Is it still fair? Is it still justice? How can it be? How can adding infinite torture that goes on and on and on and on and on forever in the future that they knew nothing of to a just punishment that they've already received in the past from the Old Testament law still be fair? Well, it can't, right? I mean, we're human and we understand this. Surely God gets it. So we come to the end of the Old Testament and there's really only one conclusion. The popular concept of hell isn't anywhere in the Old Testament. The word Gehenna is not even contained in the Greek Old Testament. And endless torture is nowhere to be found in any of it. And here's the deal, guys. There's a lot of debate to be had about the 66 books of the Protestant canon and what should have been included and what wasn't included and how they were translated and blah, blah, blah. But we're talking about the Old Testament, which was protected by the scribes from the very beginning, from the time that, you know, the oral tradition of Moses was first recorded in the Torah until they completed this translation of the Septuagint. All of this, you know, record was recorded in minute detail. So you have one of two things. Either hell did not exist in the Jewish mind. Um as a punishment for sin in this life, or you have a massive conspiracy to eradicate that message from the text. One of those two things must be true. So, you know, I know what you've heard in the past, but this is the actual truth. And you can look at this from any angle if you want to. And if you want more information, I'm happy to provide it. Um, I'm thinking of writing a book on the topic, but... It's such an easy thing to see when you really look at it. And this is probably the biggest reason that I think that hell sucks as a motivator because it's a lie. It's a lie. And we're going to get more into what Jesus had to say about it in the next episode. And uh, I didn't get a chance to share any personal information in this one. Um, These are just the, the thoughts 
that I kind of came across on my own, probably the biggest of those being, you know, even before I recognized that the Bible didn't teach it, was the thought, how can it be just to punish someone forever and ever and ever and ever and ever for something that happened in a temporary life that at the most is a hundred years? And even if you're Adolf Hitler from the day you're born until the day you die, how is there any justice in punishing you forever and ever and ever and ever? You can only commit a finite number of atrocities. It doesn't make sense. Um, now, there are two conclusions to come to, and I will let you know this, that when you start studying this, you're going to find two camps. You're going to find those who believe that what the Bible teaches instead is that those who refuse to repent are just consumed. They dissipate. They're gone. And then you will also find the universalist idea, which we'll go into this much further down the road. The universalist idea is that God is going to redeem all of creation to himself. And I think there's a lot of evidence in the biblical record for this idea. And it is what I personally believe. But regardless of which way you go here, I don't think, to me, there's any room for a thinking Christian to allow the doctrine of eternal torment of souls for sins committed in a physical life to remain. I think you have to discard it. And when you do, there's going to be a lot of questions to be asked about what this means and how you handle, you know, walking out your Christian life from now on if that is no longer true. So... Things to think about, guys. If you would like to talk to me, you can leave a message here uh, on the uh, the podcast app uh, where you found me, or you can send it to uh, hellsuckspodcast at gmail.com. I still have I have got the Hell Sucks podcast page up on Facebook, but uh, it's not really showing up in search much yet. So I'm going to need some likes and things over there first. If you're a friend of mine on Facebook, you can find out about it. I will be sharing the posts that I make from there. This uh, episode will be one of those in short order here. Um, And uh, I think that's about it for today. So I will be talking to you later. Thanks for listening.